Hi, Monument Lab listeners. I'm your host, Paul Farber. Thanks for tuning in. We're now well over a thousand downloads from around the country and around the world, in places like Germany, Sri Lanka, and elsewhere. Help us keep delivering content by subscribing to the Monument Lab podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. And leave a rating if you can. It helps. Now, back to the show. Welcome to Monument Lab, a public art and history podcast. Each episode, we'll be talking to artists, activists, and historians about the monuments we've inherited from the past and the people and movements who are critically engaging them today. These are the people building the next generation of monuments through stories of social justice and solidarity. You can read more at monumentlab.com. Our guest today is Stephanie Sihuko, an artist and professor from UC Berkeley. Sihuko is one of four artists featured in the Smithsonian American Art Museum's Disrupting Craft, Renwick Invitational, opening this week. Her artwork in the show was all made after the 2016 election, and the venue is across the street from the White House. Sihuko works on monuments by scaling them in her work to handheld objects and by bringing big ideas about history closer to her own life. She's a former Guggenheim Fellow, was part of the new photography show at the MoMA this year, and was just featured on the long-running Art 21 television program for her work as a Bay Area artist. Stephanie Siuko, it's great to have you joining us on the Monument Lab podcast. Great to be here, Paul. You are one of the four artists included in the Smithsonian American Art Museum's Disrupting Craft Renwick Invitational. And I want to ask you about your work in the exhibition in a moment. But first, um, I have to ask, what was it like working out of a museum just several hundred feet away from the current White House over the last several weeks? Well, I had a one-week install period. So um, I literally would, you know, walk over from my hotel to the museum and invariably pass a number of security checkpoints. And so in order to sometimes to get into the actual museum itself, um, you know, there were uh, police cars blocking it off, security services, all sorts of things to kind of, you know, definitely make it known that it was in really close proximity to the White House. Um, once you get inside the museum, though, you know, it becomes this other space where um, I just was focusing on my own work. But it was definitely a surreal experience to then pop out and then, you know, take a stroll to the White House and watch just everyone gathering in front of it, the small protests, the actions, the tourists, the, um, you know, the kind of looky-loos right in front of the White House. So it was definitely an odd experience. You've worked around the topic of monuments, both physical and virtual. As you were installing in D.C., how did the landscape of memory, monuments, memorials, museums appear to you now at this moment with the Trump administration in power? 
Well, so I'm based in California, and uh, you know most of my professional career is uh, has been in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I feel like um, my region's relationship to monuments or statues or or commemorative plaques um, it it. For me, it appears very different from how it's evidenced on the East Coast and especially in Washington, D.C. So, you know, I, I'm an American citizen in the sense that I became a U.S. citizen uh, through the naturalization process. So I came here as an immigrant. And as I grew up in the U.S., I, you know, learned um, American history and the kind of, you know, historical um, uh uh, events and and figures that are considered pivotal to the founding of this country. So, you know, if I go to a place like Washington D.C. or especially um, in any of the former, you know, original colonies uh, of the founding of the U.S., it's so striking to see all the um, the historical objects completely, you know, in in front of you. It's still contemporary in many ways, even though it it harkens back to hundreds of years ago. In thinking about making work as a contemporary artist and also now trying to incorporate um, looking back at American history in my own work, it's been fascinating to see how much I've been taking for granted, you know, some of the older um, historical narratives. And now I'm very interested in kind of revising them, you know, and, and reexamining them. So that was definitely kicked off by the 2016 presidential election. In Renwick's Disrupting Craft show, are you exploring those historical narratives? Yeah. Um, the the work in the Renwick, actually, almost everything in it was produced um, from 2016 onwards. So in a way, you could say that it is, you know, it encapsulates the last two years of work. Uh Immediately before the election, I had finished a large-scale installation um, called Neutral Calibration Studies. And that was a, a, a work that examined issues of empire and colonialism. And uh, it was it was uh, kind of it was a very full show and a very kind of full installation. And but that was immediately before the election. Uh, and then in November 2016, I felt like I I had to um, kind of revisit and even more directly address some of the issues that had, um, you know, only kind of been surfacely put forth in the prior installation. So, you know, um, everything after that, really, from November 2016 onwards, I've realized that um, I can't really be subtle anymore in the work because it's so easy to have it be misread um, in a kind of neutralizing way. I'm also curious to see, I think a lot of other artists are in the same predicament as well. As an artist, were you trained to be more subtle in your approaches? Uh, yeah, you know, it. I think it's a generational um, thing. I came of age as a young artist in the early 90s, and that was this very pivotal time where um, you know, more artists were getting attention for dealing with issues of race and gender and sexuality. Um, and there was also a backlash to it. So, you know, we can think about the 1993 Whitney Biennial and the, you know, the amazing artists that were spotlighted there. But the, the as an, a young art student in college, it was really apparent that there was also a backlash to it in my own work was that I realized that I needed to kind of, at the time, 
bury or even, you know, kind of cloak in metaphor some of the concerns that I felt might be considered overly, um, either overly political or, um, you know, at the time labeled didactic. But, um, you know, that was what, that was 25, 30 years ago now, which is amazing because, you know, here we are at the at this moment where I feel like artists are now starting to try to, you know, bring forward and also um, highlight, you know, more of the politics in their work today. After the election, there were many people who were forced to reckon with the way that they practice their politics. For you, did you reflect on the way that you work just for yourself? Or did you find yourself in conversation with others? You know, was this a was this a reflection just for you? Or was it a part of a bigger conversation with people, with colleagues and with people in your community? You mean in terms of um, having politics like directly um, addressed? Yeah, having a kind of shift from a from a from a subtlety to something more direct or even just um, amping up what you what you already do? Was it something that you you sat there and thought kind of like, oh, gosh, I have to I have to make a move or was it, um, you know, part of larger conversations? Well, it, it I feel like it kind of um, it happened on two fronts. So, you know, art and the production of art um, can be a rather slow uh, reaction to a situation. I think a number of artists that I was uh, um, kind of uh, meeting with and talking to, you know, we would divide our time between uh, participating in direct action. You know, that could be like uh, making the visuals for protests or, um, you know, graphics for, you know, political um, uh, activities. And then there was also the studio work where, you know, I think everyone was kind of grappling with, you know, to what extent do the do the um, events as they're unfolding actually wind up becoming incorporated in the work? And if so, how, you know, is that something that's actually kind of explicit or does it just become a quality of the, the studio artwork? So I think that, you know, for myself, I feel like I've always had a kind of um, a socially engaged or even a, you know, a critical component in my uh, discrete studio practice, but, you know, thinking about how to be the most effective with what I was creating, I've now, um, you know, I divide time between actually producing, you know, uh, uh, visuals and work that goes directly out in the world and isn't necessarily labeled as artwork per se, but has a, you know, I would say a more, um, I guess, active effect, hopefully. And then I do have, you know, sort of discrete works that then go into, say, galleries or art spaces or, you know, are kind of recognized as artwork. But it definitely, um, you know, the my art community has been kind of grappling with um, these same questions of, you know, where do you divide your time? And also, you know, how can you have um, the most impact if that's something that you're interested in with your artwork? In The Renwick Show, you explore protests through traditional craft forms like sewing, sign making. Is craft the approach that you thought of as you have been making this work? Yeah, that, that's interesting. So when the curator of the exhibition approached me to say that I was, um, you know, being put into a, a, a craft uh, biennial, uh, I was I was a bit surprised, actually, because my background um, is a, a 
fairly traditional fine art sculpture background. And so, you know, I don't have the same credentials as I think, um, you know, other artists that find themselves uh, in a craft museum might have. Um, the, the work itself, though, is very materials uh based. So, you know, there's a lot of handmade um, components. I spend a lot of time, you know, working on things in the studio. So as a reflection of um, it being crafted, then that's definitely, you know, that that's a very kind of prominent aspect of the work. Um, in regards to, you know, thinking about it politically or, or protest wise, I think, you know, those two things kind of converged just because one of the projects that I was working on had to do with remaking um, historical American garments. Um, and so, you know, sewing and kind of laboring over those objects, uh, you know, definitely infused this homespun and handmade quality in it. And I think, you know, craft has a lot of connection too with the idea of tradition in many ways. So, you know, thinking about what American tradition is and, you know, American craft, I think, um, started to come into play with my artwork. I mean, you, you deal with commerce in your work, in, including the incorporation of purchased materials and found materials and work and anything from fabric to paper to pieces of rubble. What is it like shopping with you as you prepare for an exhibition? <laughs> Um, I guess it's a, it's a, um, I would call it a voluminous experience. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, um, many of my installations actually operate on, um, quantity in the sense that I have a tendency to throw in a lot of material references, everything from, you know, as you alluded, like, uh, you know, purchased objects to handmade objects to modified objects to, um, you know, uh, 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 used objects. So there's this kind of abundance, I think, of stuff. And in general, it's, I feel like I act a bit like a, a pack rat in the beginning of the process. So it's about gathering and, you know, just kind of accumulating. And then from there, the sorting and the sifting and the arranging starts to happen about, you know, what's going to be included in the work. I think the shopping experience is, is quite fun, actually. <laughs> when speaking of shopping, we first came in contact related to your artwork, This Is Not the Berlin Wall which includes a collection of pieces of rubble from crumbled infrastructure around the United States and around the world and presented in ways that Berlin Wall pieces are, often in museums and galleries and other contexts. This is the anniversary week, the 29th anniversary week of the Berlin Wall being dismantled. How do you approach big historical topics like the dismantling of the wall? How do you respond to these large historical narratives that's true to you as an artist? Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I think that my um, my tactic has been to literally start um, from, you know, examining my own relationship or um, maybe distance from the actual event. So, you know, you were talking about the um the 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 fragments of the Berlin Wall, um, the the project that I was working on, where, you know, I was kind of examining my own relationship to this very sort of distant or you know um, even you know historical event that happened far away from where I grew up 
and didn't necessarily have a, you know, direct experience with. Um, but, you know, the, the impact of that event, you know, rippled through economically and globally and psychologically. So in that case, um, you know, it was, I was actually starting from the place of, um, uh, um, I don't want to say fantasy because that's not quite it, but it was more of like, you know, how, how could I try to draw myself closer to this, you know, pivotal event that, um, you know, I don't have any direct connection with. And so one of the ways that I found was to literally search for its fragments, you know, that had scattered all over the world via tourist souvenir objects you know, pieces of the Berlin Wall that were then able to be, you know, personally owned or, or function as a stand-in, you know, for the actual event itself. So, um, you know, in, in a lot of cases, I'm not the uh, super close to the, um, the situation, but um, I think sometimes coming from a place of not knowing can be really interesting because you have to kind of invent the relationship and also maybe make some really interesting, you know, artistic leaps of logic in terms of getting closer. I read online and perhaps it's in preparation for the Renwick exhibition um, that you attended a civil war reenactment in California. What was that like? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. So um it's funny because I, I lived for a short time in Richmond, Virginia, which is, you know, the, the, that was the seat of the Confederacy. There's Monument Avenue. There's, you know, all sorts of, you know, very kind of contemporary residues of the Civil War and the Confederacy um, in, in that city. And I'd always, you know, as a Californian, I'd always considered that as something that, you know, operated you know, far away, like in the South or, you know, in parts of the U.S. where battles had actually happened. But in, in doing more research and even, you know, thinking about maybe traveling, you know, to different battle sites, uh, you know, actual uh, sites throughout the U.S., I was finding, you know, Confederate or, or Civil War reenactments happening in California, which was insane because, you know, at no point did any of those civil war battles actually happen in California. And so what is being enacted in these situations is it's less of like a historical, um, you know, fidelity and more of like a, um, like a fantasy. And maybe that's true in, in the, in the reenactments that happen, you know, even at the actual battle sites, but going to the one in California. It was uh, near Guerneville, which is actually a really popular vacation destination <laughs> <laughs> in Northern California. So, you know, you can rent cabins and um, it's just a, it's a beautiful uh, uh, rustic area near the, the, the Russian river in Northern California. And in the middle of this is, you know, a yearly uh, civil war reenactment with, you know, Confederate sides and the Union side. And as a visitor, you pay admission and then you can kind of wander through the site. And it was really weird. <laughs> um, you know, it was it was so odd because, um, you know, the thin line between, you know, reenactment and uh, and wishful thinking, you know, might actually be closer than you think. So I spent a lot of time on the Confederate camp just you know, looking at the families and the individuals and, and just trying to kind of figure out like why they wanted to be, you know, in that space, in that moment, and also, you know, very far away from the actual site. 
California has a great mythology in the American imagination. Do you think of the state in terms of its mythologies, especially the landscape, the bridges, the parks? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're at the end of the the space of manifest destiny, you know, so like the, the westward expansion, you know, from the East Coast moving towards the West, California was the, you know, almost the farthest you could go, except for Alaska and Hawaii, obviously. But the, um, you know, so at the promised land, you know, California being the golden state also, and obviously the, um, you know, the 49ers and the gold rush and now the contemporary gold rush of the um, the tech industry that's based out here. Um, you know, it, it is this kind of fantastical place, but it's also, it has its own mythologies that are, you know, very similar to, to the historical mythologies of, you know, say the, um, the East or the South in terms of the Confederacy and the founding of the country. You know, we have statues here that commemorate, um, you know, the, both pioneer days and also, you know, the, um, the, the Spanish, you know, conquest of native peoples. So, you know, we have our own forms of these like relics that, you know, we either um, ignore just because they've always been there or in some cases, um, you know, fight against. So I, um, I've been thinking a lot about how, you know, for better or for worse, a lot of the monuments in the, on the East Coast and the South are the ones that get the most attention in terms of being the repositories of anxiety. But especially in California, we have ours here. We just have our blind spots to them. In San Francisco, uh, the city recently took down the early days statue, which depicts a Native American figure at the feet of a Spanish cowboy and, and Catholic missionary. Did you have a sense of this statue as a problematic site in the city? And how have you been thinking about this takedown in the Bay Area? You know, having grown up in the Bay Area, that that statue was actually quite prominent. It was, you know, it's located in the Civic Center, which is, you know, the seat of the um, the city government. It's also right next door to the um, the main public library. So it occupies this very, you know, kind of central space. And I'd always kind of, you know, known it right in the back of my head. And, you know, it, it was just always there. And I'd always known, too, that it had, you know, it had been trailed with a, an amount of controversy. Like, I think, you know, a lot of folks had been advocating for its removal for quite a while. But given, you know, I think the um, the parallels of Confederate monuments that are currently being taken down and have been taken down in the past two years, the, um, you know, the push to get it removed uh, seemed to, you know, kind of ramp up. So um, as uh, I'd photographed it actually uh, multiple times in the past and was following very closely, you know, some of the, um, the, the litigation on both sides, you know, in terms of like trying to have it removed. And they finally got it passed to, you know, have it removed. And literally, I, I was so surprised, literally the next morning, after that, you know, the verdict was handed down, it was quietly removed at like five in the morning. So, you know, before any other, you know, protest or, um, you know, stay could have happened. And unfortunately, what that did for me, though, was I, I had actually planned to go that day <laughs> to, um, you know, to to photograph it in uh, using a 3D uh, 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 software 
um, and and actually create a kind of uh, 3D model of it in at, on its site before it had been removed. But uh, literally, you know, uh, five hours before I was headed out to do it, it was it was removed. <laughs> so um, I'd been thinking about a project relating to it where I've been 3D scanning um, monuments and historical objects, and also creating imperfect uh, models of them. So, you know, my scanning software is actually very, um, very poor. It's a, it's a very kind of informal way of doing it. And eventually what happens though, is you render this kind of, um, you know, fragmented object, which for me hints at the metaphor of, you know, an imperfect, uh, history, you know, or something wrong or, um, incomplete about the object. So with early days, I'm, I'm interested in it because, you know, it, it's been at that site since 1894. It's now gone. This idea of where it is, is really fascinating to me because you can't destroy an artwork in the sense that I think all the civic owners of all the monuments that have been removed still have to kind of care for them in some way. So, you know, according to an article that I read, it was going to cost $120,000 to remove, to restore, and store early days. So it still is this kind of cultural investment, you know, that we're making towards it, even, you know, through an economic means. And it won't be destroyed because it is an artwork. So, you know, what do we do with these, like, very um, problematic artworks? It's really fascinating, and I, I'm, I'm interested in following through on those questions. Speaking of location, you're a Bay Area artist. Um, author Rebecca Solnit wrote about one of your projects in her book, Far Away Nearby, when you flooded proposals for a bedazzle a tech bus project. What's your relationship with big tech? Oof, wow. Well, let's see. So, um, it's a complicated question because I, you know, I, I've been located in the Bay Area pretty much my entire life, which means that, you know, my I, I moved here with my mother when I was three years old in 1977. And ever since then, you know, have kind of witnessed the shifting of the economy, the culture, and also, you know, the general psychology of the Bay Area. Um I think in the in the beginning, when the culture of invention, which the Bay Area is also very uh, famous for, you know, everything from like the 1960s and the free speech movement and, you know, hippie culture and then, you know, all sorts of kind of, um, you know, avant-garde or um, alternative, you know, lifestyles, which were are kind of enshrined in, in Bay Area history. And so when the, the tech industry, you know, in its early days when, you know, it was, uh, literally, you know, uh, folks making, you know, computers in their in their garages and, and, and you know, having this kind of visionary look towards what, what was possible. It was really invigorating, you know, and it was really, it was the kind of Stuart Brand version of tech at the time, you know, this kind of very positive look at the future. And then as it's unfolded, you know, in the subsequent decades, there's this horror, you know, that that's now accompanying it where, you know, it really has been harnessed by rampant capitalism and speculation. I have a complicated um, relationship to it, too, because it's uh, it's as much a part of the area um, that I grew up in as much as, you know, it's also this really foreign invader at the same time. You were recently featured 
on the show Art 21 in their ninth season. And you were presented as a San Francisco Bay Area artist. Did you feel pressure to represent the city, um, especially at this moment and that the city's identity shifts? Yeah. So, you know, Art 21 is an amazing um, documentary series. They choose several different cities for each episode. And then from there, spotlight four artists to kind of represent. And, you know, that is a that's a tall order in the sense that you can tell, you know, that the narrative arc that gets set up from that structure means that each artist is is literally, you know, has to kind of hold maybe a lot of the concerns of, you know, the the area, or at least they're symbolic of it, whether they're truly reflective, you know, who knows, that's, that's kind of a, um, you know, that, that's a curatorial uh, kind of decision. But um, I think, you know, when, when I was asked to be a part of it, I was incredibly honored, because that that really becomes a way for, you know, the work to be contextualized in a global sense, but also to have to, you know, symbolize the Bay Area, I think was a, a lot of pressure because I can, I also know so many artists and movements and concerns and, um, you know, uh, other tracks of, uh, of art happening here that get left out because of, you know, that the curatorial focus. So, um, you know, in the end, I'm incredibly proud of it because I do think that, you know, as a, as a almost native, you know, to the Bay that, you know, I've I've seen it go through so many changes that it is in my work. I am very proud to say that I'm a Bay Area artist. Um, I also do think, though, that you know the only way to survive as an artist in the Bay Area is to actually leave it as often as possible. Have you heard feedback from people in the Bay or in other cities about this episode, especially around that idea of what it takes to be a Bay Area artist? Um, not so much about being, um, successful. Most of the artists that are, were spotlighted in the episode actually were doing projects outside of the Bay Area as well. So, you know, the nice thing was that it showed that although, you know, every area is regional, you know, in the sense that it has its own concerns, it also looks outwards. So, you know, with the work that I was, um, that I was making was actually for a gallery in New York. And then, you know, they, they, they spotlighted some of that, um, you know, the opening and the project there, just like, you know, the Renwick happening, um, the Renwick exhibition opening in DC was all made in my, you know, Bay area studio, but then is headed to Washington, DC. So I think if anything, the feedback that I've been getting, um, from folks is usually it's a, you know, especially from younger artists of color. It's this idea that, you know, um, that wonderful, like, you know, you, someone is representing us in some way because there are, um, you know, uh, it's very easy to have that, um, that, the, that perspective, you know, left out of the, the larger conversation. So that, that's really made me, um, uh, feel really proud, you know, of being a part of it that way. Thinking about the broader landscape of geopolitics. There's um, a project of yours that I've really been captivated by, and it's your rogue states from the Moscow Biennial, um, which you describe as an installation of fictional flags of made-up countries um, from Hollywood movies um, that pose countries as terrorist, backward, resistant, or unstable, in your words. And those movies include Coming to America and Die Hard. 
Uh, what was the impetus for that project? Rogue States um, has only been shown in uh, Moscow, which I think is really interesting because, you know, we're at this, you know, complicated relationship right now with Russia in terms of um, American-Russia relations. So uh, when I was asked to do a project uh, for the Moscow Biennial, I really wanted to think about how, you know, perceptions of us and them and, um, you know, here and there, and also, um, you know, how, how empires kind of view each other. You know, to do something in Moscow, I think, is a really different context from, you know, doing a project, say, in, in Asia or Europe or the U.S. Each city or each, you know, country or continent has, you know, assumptions of the other, whoever the other is. So um, when we talked and settled on um, showing rogue states, which was uh, a series of flags. You know, there are 22 flags, uh, very colorful. They're hung in a way that it kind of suggests a United Nations-style convention. And so when you walk into the room, it appears as if, you know, it's a very sort of prestigious space or, you know, a gathering of nations. And then when you look at the, um, the graphic on the wall and it points out that these are Hollywood, you know, fictional countries, that you know we're we're essentially made up as a kind of foil to a Western or American protagonist. Um, you know the the films range from everything from comedies like you were mentioning. You know, coming to America with um, Eddie Murphy to Die Hard Two. You know, in somewhere in South America, by hanging them all up and putting them up, it almost became this reflection of you know fears of uh, both the U.S. but also any any um, any country that considers itself an empire. So when it went to um, to Russia, I thought it was perfect because you know I think uh, in Moscow, it's a kind of critique of the West, right? Like I think that the way they were seeing it is like, oh, you know, these you know Europe and Russia, Europe and the U.S. is so scared of these phantoms, these fictions. And, you know, here in the U.S., that Rogue States project would also, you know, operate differently. So it, it was kind of funny to be kind of complicit with the, the, the Russian critique of the West. <laughs> you're, you're not the producer of those films that you, you know, drew, drew these samples from. But I'm curious, did you think at all about why producers of those films would kind of make up countries on one hand and make up their flags, but kind of locate them geopolitically nonetheless? Well, it's, uh, you know, obviously I think it's better PR to not, you know, position a specific country, you know, to hold whatever villainous, um, you know, uh, actions need to happen in a film. So it's much more convenient to also create a type, a kind of generic you know, enemy, which may, you know, appear or look like, you know, like a rogue state in, you know, Southeast Asia or the Middle East or, you know, um, Eastern Europe. So it's, it becomes a repository of like all the fears and fantasies and, you know, it, it's a perfect space of othering where then you don't have to worry about consequences as a, as a, um, a filmmaker, you know, because it's, it it doesn't exist. It it really is a, a kind of phantom in a way. Rogue states and and many of the other projects that you know we're discussing um, take on 
big historical themes, but it it also kind of blurs them and and visits them in the middle, whether it's colonialism or the Cold War or globalization. Is it important to separate out these thematics or are you looking to find the kind of patterns and cycles of history? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, In general, my work, um, sometimes it can appear like it's jumping around. You know, like from like digital networks and, you know, 3D modeling of, you know, city spaces to, you know, global politics or, you know, something sometimes like really specific that I think, you know, sometimes appears that it doesn't have to do with the rest of it. I am, I think I am trying to find patterns though. You know, it's like um, the patterns of power, you know, patterns also of manipulation. In many cases, my work incorporates, um, a kind of counterfeit element, you know, something that isn't quite true or um, is a stand-in for something else. So whether that's, you know, fake pieces of the Berlin Wall to, um, you know, fake stacks of money or inauthentic uh, flags, there's this notion that somehow, you know, that things can be manipulated in such a way that it can, it takes on, you know, the role Uh, that it shouldn't. And in thinking about how power can kind of manifest in, you know, objects and symbols, like that is a complete construction in the sense that, you know, uh, power really needs strong symbols and, um, and images. And if you can, if you are able to actually harness that and manipulate it, then you find yourself in this really, you know, scary position of, you know, very similar to maybe where we are today, you know, when thinking about how signs and symbols and messages and slogans can be used to really, um, you know, powerful and negative ends. As an artist operating in this political moment, can you find critical distance to be able to sense those patterns? Or do you ever feel inundated by the daily news stories and onslaught of the contemporary moment. I guess that goes back again then to the, um, you know, the initial predicament immediately after the election when, you know, the, the barrage of information and the barrage of just, you know, everything being thrown into the fire, like how to react. Um, I think that, you know, my, my response was really to kind of start segmenting it out. My artwork now is more about looking at how we got here, Um, you know, re-examining historical forms, whether that's, you know, monuments or icons or, you know, sites, because I do think we need to kind of find our way out of it by moving forward. I still think that it's, it's really useful to examine, you know, all the, the kind of hidden, you know, spaces that led up to this. So again, maybe it's, uh, you know, in thinking about how I've kind of bifurcated some of my output today where, you know, I'm very active with producing graphics and posters and protest um, imagery and banners when it's necessary, because I feel like that moves forward. You know, that's something that actually can be utilized. And then on the flip side too, you know, by looking at historical forms through my artwork, that kind of helps balance maybe you know, this idea of where I am now in the middle, which is in our present moment. So it's delicate in the sense that I think all artists now are also thinking about, you know, how, you know, 
how are we incorporating these ideas in, in our work? And, and should we? I also want to acknowledge that I think, you know, this idea too that all art has to be, you know, immediately political isn't necessarily, you know, true or needed for folks. But I also do think now, and I've been asked this, um, you know, rather recently, like, you know, do you make political work or, you know, are you, are you a political artist? And my response to that has been that, you know, I, as an artist that makes work that is reflective of the things around them, if all of a sudden things get very heated and political around me, I can't help but respond to that. And that, um, you know, it's, it's my intent may not be to make political work, but the conditions around me have become political. So that's how it's, it's turning out. Do you ever approach work around this idea of it having to hit a certain level of impact or success or activation? Or can you take a step back from your work and, and let it sit and simmer and be absorbed in its own rhythm? Uh, I'm curious about, uh, like, what project would you consider maybe? You know, one example is the the work shown at the MoMA and, and bought by PAFA. Uh, cargo cults, oh, for yeah. example. Yeah, so actually that project was done, um, uh, it started in 2013. It's a series of photographs that appear to be the reworked ethnographic images of faux, what look like tribes people or natives um, from the Philippines. And um, that was made in Omaha, Nebraska. And the the funny thing about that project, so it was done in 2013. And, you know, now five years later, you know, thinking back on it, I do feel that, you know, it it has, in my eyes at least, you know, become more complicated for me just because the, you know, the conditions on the ground have changed. And also, I think, you know, we, as artists, we make work that where we may be responding to specific things that are happening or that we're thinking about then. And hopefully, if we make something complicated enough, it actually starts to read differently later. It doesn't stay fixed. Maybe it even starts to kind of contradict itself, um, you know, down the road. I've been making work for over two decades now as a professional artist, and I'm surprised at how often I come back to some of the early projects that I've done. And, you know, I've sort of disavowed them, you know, somewhere along the way at times. But then revisiting it, you know, I, I can kind of realize like, oh, you know, there's actually something there. Like it was more interesting than I thought. And that might have been unintentional. So hopefully that's a happy accident if that happens. You are a professor, a a teaching artist. What are the most important values and practices you try to impart to your students at Berkeley? So I have been uh, teaching at the university level for about 12 years now. And for most of the students that I work with, the amount of contact is, um, you know, not a lot. And, and that's just a function of, you know, the, the way that the classes work. Sometimes a student is only, you know, at, at UC Berkeley for two years because they enter as a transfer student, which means, you know, they come in during their, um, literally their junior year in college. So in two years, I, I have to, you know, work with them to develop their projects and also, you know, prepare them for whatever it means to be, you know, an artist out in the world. And given that time, there's only so much. Many young artists come in thinking that, 
you know, they, they want to be artists because they know how to paint and draw. And then my job is to try to show them, you know, all the different examples of contemporary art and how it actually functions today, you know, in, in terms of being in the world or, you know, um, having uh, forms that might be completely unexpected to them. And that's a, that's a tall order for two years, you know, and in many cases less, because if I'm, you know, if I only have contact with someone for a class or, you know, one meeting, um, it's, it's, uh, what I attempt to do is try to instill this notion that there is an ethics also in being an artist and that as well as being an artist, you are also a citizen, and what that means is that you're a citizen in the sense of being a, a civic participant in the world. So whether or not that means you're a citizen of a country, that's not the important thing. It's it's how are you participating, you know, through um, individual actions, um, you know, community involvement, or even you know political um, political work. And many students aren't really prepared for that proposition. <laughs> you know, when they when they decide to become artists or or go to art school. And I think that's a, you know, that's a challenge. And in the cases where I succeed or my department succeeds, because I, I do think the other professors I work with are also on board with this idea, you know, then it's a wonderful thing to see. And it's worth it even just trying to interject that as often as possible, but in a way that they can also understand. If we're thinking about this moment, it's not the the end of history; <laughs> it's the the continuation or the, <laughs> the revenge of history or resurgence. Um, if you had to forecast what kinds of monuments and public history will emerge out of this time of struggle in the United States and elsewhere. Can you see that as something emerging or what do you see going on from your perspective now? Wow. Well, let's see. I think the idea of stability, you know, so, you know, when a monument is put up or uh, any kind of sort of marker of, of an event, you know, traditionally it has been, uh, placed in a rather stable space. And by that, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a physical weight to it. It's a, you know, it's, it's a marker, it's a monument, it's made out of, you know, stone or steel or a structure, you know, it's usually immovable. It's permanent. That's the intention or, or has been the intention of monuments. And I'm wondering if, you know, not to kind of make it seem that everything should be um, uh, transitory, but I'm wondering if there's a way that our future monuments always have built into them some form of uh, reflexivity, you know, some ability to have things added to them or annotated onto them or, um, you know, the ability to kind of like flip something if necessary I can see that also being very problematic because then that means, you know, well, how do you, how do you literally, you know, try to make sure something stays in, in memory if it's actually, you know, malleable in some way. But when thinking about how, you know, works put up, you know, a hundred 
or even sometimes just 50 years ago, you know, can seem so contrary to the, to our current values. Um, I wonder if we can in, in any way create a structure or a form that is much more um, open to change. I don't know what that could look like. And I also, you know, know from what I've seen of Monument Lab, you know, the examples are amazing. I also, it, it seems like these, these monuments are also not meant necessarily to be there forever. And so, that, you know, that itself could be a condition for a monument. You have uh, answered heavy questions and you take on heavy themes and, and, you know, you do so with a joy and a verve. What do you do for self-care and where do you find your release? Yeah, it's funny because the term self-care, I, I, I can imagine there's been a lot of, um, you know, it, on internet searches, I, I can imagine that term has, you know, sort of skyrocketed <laughs> in the last two years in terms of, you know, what people are searching for. Um, what I try to do, you know, similar, I think, to what a lot of folks do, which is, you know, attempt to kind of make sure that their own base, you know, that their, their, their relationships, their friendships, their families are, you know, somehow secure. Um, I do spend a lot of time actually uh, gardening. So I, I have a backyard and I, you know, literally get invested in time out in it as a way to try to get closer to something more physical, something that's cyclical, something that, you know, I know has been around as a kind of form for time immemorial. And um, interestingly, growing food, um, you know, learning how to, you know, work with those cycles and processes, I think is really grounding. It's definitely a slower pace, you know, than the 24-hour news cycle that we're all used to. Um, But that's one way for sure. Stephanie Siuko, thank you so much for your time and conversation today. Paul, it's been a pleasure. This is, uh, I really appreciate being a part of this podcast. Stephanie Siuko's work is featured in the Smithsonian American Art Museum's Disrupting Craft Renwick Invitational, opening November 9th, running through May 5th. You can see her feature on Season 9 of Art 21, by checking local listings or watching online at art21.org. Visit stephaniesihuko.com for more on her work and projects. You can listen to Monument Lab and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you like the show, remember to leave a rating or review. It really helps. The Monument Lab podcast is supported by the Serdna Foundation. This podcast is written and produced by Paul Farber and Justin Geller. Designer and associate producer is William Roy Hodgson. Sound engineer, Justin Geller. Editorial coordinator, Steph Garcia. All music on the podcast is original by Mokita. I'm your host, Paul Farber. For more, Visit us at monumentlab.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.